We turn in God's inspired word this morning to Galatians chapter 3. Reading into the fourth chapter where we will find our text. Galatians 3, we begin reading at verse 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit, Through faith, brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, Verily, righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, There is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus, and if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So far we read this morning, the text to which I call your attention is Galatians 4, verses 6 and 7. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, wherefore thou art no more a servant, 
but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, it's very important for a proper understanding of our text this morning that we see the context. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. That Spirit, whose outpouring we commemorate today, could not be sent forth anywhere than upon sons. That ye are sons must be established. And that's exactly what many Christians in Galatia had forgotten. When you study this epistle, you find that the church at Galatia is likened to a grown son who's a son and an heir in father's house, and yet who mistakenly looks upon himself as a servant. This son thinks that he must earn a place as a son and an heir by working for wages. That was the error of the Galatians. They had forgotten. They're sons of God. And why the Christians in Galatia could so easily fall into such error is not so difficult to understand when we remember the church had just come out of the era of the Old Testament. And during the Old Testament times, there were some things that might cause them to think that they were servants who had to work for wages. The apostles sets forth the distinction between Old and New Testaments this way. During the Old Testament, you were like children. Now, you are like adults. They were sons and heirs during the Old Testament, not slaves. But during that time, they were like children. They were still small. They still had to be governed in a different way than now. They were sons, but they had yet to grow up. So during the Old Testament, the church was indeed treated as a child. In every respect of her life, she was governed by the law. And that law, that holy law of God, had to be to that child her governor and her tutor. And the same holds true today with our own children, just as it did with with us adults when we were younger. As children, there are certain chores, little jobs to do around the house, and we are told, do this and don't do that. And many laws govern a child. From the first time that child has to be told, no, don't touch. And sometimes as children... Maybe we complain about being slaves or servants or we think that way. Well, that was the trouble with the church oftentimes throughout the Old Testament. The child, which was the church, mistook the purpose of the law. And mistaking that purpose, they began to look at the law as a code of conduct according to which they had to work for wages. So Paul would remind them of the principles of the gospel. The apostle writes to tell them, even forcefully and emphatically, they have to remember they are sons, not slaves. And so... 
we read in chapter 3, verse 2, this only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? They mustn't be religious in the sense of working for wages. They have many callings before the face of their Heavenly Father. Privileges do not remove obligations. But those callings are not to be viewed as callings that works that have to be done in order to earn a place in Father's house. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Christ had redeemed them in order that they might be free sons in Father's house. And that gospel the apostle had preached before to these Christians in Galatia, but deceivers had entered. And those deceivers had launched a personal attack upon the apostle and his teachings and told the Galatians that they were still under the law. They still had to observe all the laws and ceremonies of the Old Testament in order to be the children of God. And the Galatians had fallen for those deceitful teachings of the enemy. They began to act again as servants they returned to what Paul referred to as the weak and beggarly elements, acting as if they were still children, still under the law. And that's the setting in which the apostle says, don't you see that you're wrong? Don't you see that your perspective is wrong? Don't you see that you're missing out on the joy that lies at the heart of the gospel? God has sent his son. The son is free. And God has sent that free son under the law, not that he should remain under the law, but that he might deliver you from that law and make you free sons and daughters. In God's house. Moreover, you've received the Spirit who testifies in your hearts that you are sons, crying, Abba, Father. As sons, you are heirs. All that is in Father's house is yours. Live, therefore, as sons and heirs in thankfulness for your Father's love, for his care, for his provision of you, for the great blessings he's given you as your Father, for Christ's sake. So I call your attention to this text and the beauty of Pentecost under the theme, the Spirit of the Son. We notice, first of all, who he is. Secondly, to whom he is sent. And finally, the result of his coming. He is the Spirit of the Son who is sent forth into our hearts. And if we would understand it all, the mystery of salvation as realized at Pentecost, we must ask, first of all, who is the Spirit of the Son? The Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. It's been some time now since we've considered the truth of the Trinity going through the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 8. But you remember the truth of the Trinity is one of the foundational scriptural truths of the church. 
God is triune, three persons in one divine being. We confess with Moses in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, the Lord our God is one Lord. He's undivided in his being and in all his attributes, righteousness, holiness, love, goodness, all the rest, are perfectly one in him. But in that one divine being, there are three persons, three who say, I. And those three divine persons are not divided either. That is, it's not so that each of the three persons possesses part of the Godhead. Each one possesses the whole Godhead. Those three divine persons are revealed in Scripture as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in whose names we baptize according to the command of Christ in Matthew 28, verse 19. And the three live and will and think with the enti- together with the entire Godhead. There's no division, there's no separation in what they think and will and do. They remain distinct persons for all that. The Father always lives the divine life as Father, the Son as Son, the Holy Spirit as Holy Spirit. So, when the Apostle speaks of the Spirit of the Son, the reference is not only to the truth that He is the Spirit within the divine being who proceeds from the Father to the Son and from the Son to the Father, but more particularly, He belongs to the Son as the Spirit of Christ. Now the text speaks of that Spirit living in our hearts. Elsewhere in the Bible, in fact in the call to worship this morning in in John 14, we heard him referred to as the Spirit of Truth. The Spirit of Comfort. Sometimes he's referred to as the spirit of adoption. Here, the spirit of God's Son. So there's particular emphasis in the name used here. He's the spirit who not only proceeds from the Son in order to glorify the Father, but he is the spirit who has the life of the Son in him, and through whom the life of the Son comes to expression. It's through the Spirit that the Son cries eternally, Abba, Father. Now when God sends the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, the Spirit of Christ, He works in us that same testimony making plain to us that we are sons of God. The Spirit operates in us as the Spirit of the Son, and therefore, as we read in Romans 8, verse 15, as the Spirit of adoption. In order to understand how He works as the Spirit of the Son, we have to see the close connection between Pentecost and the Incarnation. Without the Incarnation, there's no Pentecost. The Apostle connects the two events in this chapter. First, he speaks of God sending His Son in the fullness of time. And then he speaks of sending the Spirit of His Son into your heart. We have to understand, therefore, that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit into our hearts as the Spirit of the Son has its basis in the fact that God sent forth His Son in the likeness of our sinful flesh. That glorious truth of the Incarnation 
central to our salvation, is also central to our own conscious participation in that salvation. For the Spirit of the Son, as such, belongs exclusively to the Son, eternally, and never can be in a sinful human creature. But when the Son came, in the fullness of time, made of a woman, made under the law, he also received the Spirit according to his human nature, as one of us. He received the Spirit in order that he might be the servant of Jehovah and accomplish the work whereunto he was appointed from eternity. He had that Spirit without measure. And by that Spirit he spoke and he ministered and he did many wonderful works. And by the Spirit, the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, offered himself in perfect love and obedience even unto death. As the perfect sacrifice for the sins of his people, which is to say he obtained for his people the right, the rights that belong to the sons of God. But also the right to have the Spirit of the Son dwell in our hearts. Moreover, having accomplished his priestly work, Christ was exalted. What does it mean, boys and girls, that Christ was exalted? It means he was lifted up and made big, very big. We read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God made Christ, as it were, the biggest person of all in order that all the blessings of salvation might be in him. And so we read in Colossians 1 verse 19, For it pleased the Father that in him, that is in Christ, should all fullness dwell. And then finally, in that connection, On Pentecost, the glorious Christ, filled with the Spirit, poured out His Spirit into the church. So that we can illustrate this indwelling Spirit with a figure. God is the fountain. Out of that fountain, Christ, as the head of the church, is filled with the Spirit, He's filled not just once, but continuously with an ever-flowing stream of God's glory and grace. There's a living stream flowing from that fountain which into Christ and on Pentecost, that fountain overflowed. It overflows from Christ into many branches, into the hearts of his people out of the Father, through the Son, into the church, the Spirit flows with all the blessings of salvation. And that sending of the Spirit is without any visible appearance. Yes, you remember in the early New Testament, Before the completion of the scriptures, the Spirit was sent with visible appearance. 
in the likeness of fire. He appeared upon the apostles and the other believers gathered in the upper room. As Luther points out, that was necessary along with other signs, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, because of unbelief. Wherefore, tongues are for signs, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. That's what the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit. But after the church was confirmed with these miracles, and when the Spirit completed his work of inspiration and gathering the books of the Bible together for the church, it was not necessary that the visible sending of the Spirit should continue. Furthermore, the sending of the Spirit of the Son is not a work of reason nor of the will of man. It's the work of the sovereign God who works in our hearts, in the consciousness of his, the consciousness of his work becomes ours through the word of God as Christ speaks to us by his gospel. And so we read, Because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts. Notice the text is personal. Speaks to you. Speaks of being sent to you. It's true, the Spirit is poured out into the church the head of which is Christ. And it's also true that it's only within the communion of saints. That is, as members of Christ's body, do you and I possess that spirit. But the text emphasizes the fact that this indwelling of the spirit is personal. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your heart. That Spirit doesn't just dwell generally in the church as some abstract force. He dwells in the hearts of each of the children of God. In your heart and mine. And notice, too, he is sent into our hearts. The Bible tells us that our heart is another fountain. Out of it are all the issues of life. Proverbs 4, verse 23. That heart, according to Scripture, is the center of our spiritual existence and function. It's the heart which controls and directs all that we do from the viewpoint of their spiritual characteristics, either good or evil. Now you realize that that heart is totally corrupt as we are by nature. All the issues of that heart are evil. So we we might Put it this way, corresponding to the emphasis of the text, by nature we have not the heart of a son of God, but of a rebel. So that when the apostle, when we say with the apostle that the spirit of the son has made his dwelling place in our heart, He operates as the spirit of adoption. The spirit of the Son ministers to us and applies to us our adoption as children of God, dethroning that nature of the devil that permeates our being 
and regenerating and converting and sanctifying us. When this Spirit dwells in our hearts, He stands at the controls of our life so that from the heart we live as children of God. Until finally, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be made perfectly conformed to the image of his dear Son. We in whom the Spirit dwells are identified more particularly in the text as sons. No more a servant, but a son. And the order of the text shows us that God has sent forth the spirit of his son into the hearts of those who are sons. Because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts. Plainly, our sonship is first. The indwelling of the spirit of Christ is second. Now the question, what does this mean? Does it mean that we first must show ourselves children of God and then we shall receive the Spirit of Christ? Does it mean that we first must become the sons of God and then God will bestow upon us the Spirit of Adoption? Does it mean perhaps that we must at least be willing to be the children of God and to receive the Spirit before God will give us that Spirit of His Son? You realize that would contradict Scripture in many, many places as well as contradicting nature. We don't make ourselves children of our parents. To teach that would be a denial of the gospel of grace, which Paul had proclaimed to the Galatians and to others, and would leave us in a state of hopelessness. As we've seen, by nature, we're hopelessly enslaved to sin. I don't have the ability to make myself a son of God. As we see in Jeremiah 13, verse 23, no more than a leopard can change his spots, or an Ethiopian can change the color of his skin. Can you and I make ourselves children of God? It's exactly the beauty and the comfort of the gospel that our claim as sons is given us freely and sovereignly by God out of unconditional and particular grace. We are sons by adoption. That's the emphasis of the context and of the text before us too. We didn't choose to be sons. God chose us to be his children from eternity in his sovereign purpose of election in Christ. Scripture teaches us that throughout. Romans 9. 1 Peter 2, many, many other passages. And according to Romans 8, verse 29, God predestinated us to be conformed to the image of His Son. God also accomplished that adoption in time. He made us legally His children through the blood and merits of Christ, his only begotten Son. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, 
made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. We had our adoption papers sealed, written in the blood of Christ, sealed in his resurrection. In that way we became sons. And because we are sons, with all the rights that belong to the sons of the living God, Therefore, God also has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit is ours by grace in Christ Jesus. And He's given us in order that He might so mold us and shape us that we might actually look like God's dear Son. And you and I may certainly know for a fact that we are children of God. We may know that sonship by faith as confirmed by the indwelling Spirit. The result of the Spirit's coming into our hearts is first of all, We are no more servants, but sons. We're not slaves. This is the beauty of Christianity. The world lays claim to freedom. That freedom is a false freedom. Look at the bondage of the world apart from Christ. Will you walk with the world? They're in bondage to sin. The freedom that is ours in Christ is a freedom that the world will never know apart from Christ. The freedom to serve the living God and to experience the joy of His fellowship and love. No, we're not slaves. Nor do we, in whom the Spirit dwells, have the attitude and outlook of slaves. For we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, But we have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. That's Romans 8, verse 15. The spirit of bondage is the spirit of thought which dominates the abused slave. It's the spirit according to which one works for his master out of terror. Afraid of the whip. That's the spirit of the world. And the amazing thing is, because of the power of sin, those who are enslaved in such bondage don't even realize their bondage. Because they're not not afraid of being physically whipped, after all. Their bondage is more a bondage of the mind. They live in the fear of being an outcast. Being alone. Being a stranger in the world. Being mocked were they to follow Jesus and the pathway of self-denial. But they can't free themselves from that bondage. Their slavery is no less than the abused slaves of years past. In that spirit of bondage, the sinner 
who has not the spirit of the Son is only interested in being free from the punishment and consequences of sin, but not in being free from sin. He longs for the freedom to do his own thing. To sin without consequence. And we used to be of the same mindset. By nature we are. And that sinful flesh still bears marks of that bondage. But we are no more slaves. And that means neither is our outlook one of a hired servant. That's not our outlook. That's not our attitude. That's not how we hear God's word. Scripture indeed speaks of the calling to serve. And to be servants of the living God. Scripture speaks of our calling within the servant-master relationship, for example. As employers and employees. But it's interesting to note, Scripture never draws a parallel between the service of Christians and the employer-employee relationship. Because we don't work for wages. We're not hired servants in Father's house. The the hired servant has to work in order to have the right to anything. Wages, whatever. When it comes to the Christian faith, that's the spirit of the Pharisee which Jesus condemned. It's the spirit of works, not of faith. That's a different spirit of bondage. A spirit according to which attitude we live under the constant threat that we shall only receive something from God if we earn it. We are no more servants. We don't come before God's law that way. We don't hear his commands that way. You don't, do you? We're children and heirs. And as children in whom the Spirit dwells, we understand this truth as impressed upon us from the Scripture. We are heirs. And we fulfill our calling as heirs. And we walk in obedience as heirs. What a beautiful concept. To be an heir from an earthly point of view is not something we normally look forward to with any eager anticipation because to be an heir involves the death of a loved one who's giving us that inheritance. But when we are heirs as children of God, that death has already occurred. And it was a death that amounted to victory for all concerned. As children, we inherit all the Father's riches. We have the right as children to all the wealth of our Heavenly Father. As Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, and ye are Christ's, and Christ is God. Christ has merited everything for us. We cannot merit any additional thing. And because we are sons and heirs, we can never fail to receive the inheritance. 
Because that inheritance is not dependent upon us, but only upon him who made us his heirs through our Lord Jesus Christ. So where does that leave us? Shall we continue in the bondage of sin? Not if we are children and heirs. Because those in whom the Spirit dwells don't live as prodigals and reprobates. We cry, Abba, Father. That's a cry of intense love. Abba and Father mean the same. Abba being the Hebrew and the translation of Father coming from the Greek. But the use of the terms together expresses a feeling of intensity. The Spirit cries that as the Spirit of the Son in such a deep love for the Father that we can only very faintly understand. But he also proclaims that cry in the hearts of those who are his children. Which is to say with personal application, when the Spirit lives in us, the result is sure. He works in us a childlike spirit. And according to that childlike spirit, we desire to be well-pleasing to our Heavenly Father. so that we likewise cry, Abba, Father. That's the cry of our love and confidence, of our fellowship with and longing to serve our Father who is in heaven. It's a cry that expresses our longing and drive toward perfection. And it's a cry, let us understand well, that doesn't merely arise from the lips. It arises from the heart and permeates our entire life. Is that your cry? Is it a matter of your own experience that you Take the word of this text as your own? Yes, I'm a son. I'm a daughter. An heir of God through Christ. That's your confession? Oh, I know the remnants of sin still cleave to us even after we've received the Holy Spirit. And yet in this world of sin, in the, in the midst of, of the struggle of our own sinful flesh, we've learned to cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's crying, Abba, Father. It's the Spirit who, who works in us. That we know the sorrow for sin. A sorrow that cannot be removed until we know we are forgiven. You know that cry? Abba, Father. Before the Spirit took up his abode in us, we couldn't rightly judge anything. We didn't see the sinfulness of our own sin. We didn't see our need for Christ. We didn't understand what freedom is. Now we find in Christ our only merit and salvation. 
And God is our Father. And we believe with our heart, so we speak with our mouth, according to the confession of the psalmist in Psalm 116, verse 10, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. Seeing the sinfulness of our sin, we, we flee sin out of love for our Father. If anyone have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Where there is no love for the Word, no love for God's precepts, where the precepts of Jehovah are treated as nothing more than ancient and foolish laws determined by the state, where men's love for the world makes clear there is no love for God. There is no indwelling spirit of the Son, but only the spirit of bondage. But you who willingly hear and receive the word of God, who have seen the glorious light of the gospel and the blood of Jesus washing away your sins, you may be assuredly persuaded that you are the temples of the living God in whom the Spirit dwells. And in the consciousness of being heirs, you have every reason to seek the things above where Christ sits at God's right hand. Amen. Gracious Father, we give thanks to Thee for the gift of salvation that is ours in Christ Jesus. For the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that we might know our relationship to Thee as free sons and daughters in Christ. Gracious Father, grant that we live in that freedom to the honor and glory of thy name. For Jesus' sake, amen.